You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season. Whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa, I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day. Whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and and satellite maps that they offer on their uh, their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day, and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map and uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before I had to wait till sun up and then and then you know find it that way but that problem does not exist anymore because of Onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that I think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode, I am back on the mic here in Bear Branch, Indiana, and it's good to be home. I'm just returning after four weeks on the road out west, uh, starting in Arizona and working my way all the way up to the Swan Valley. We had a lot of good times hound hunting. You're going to hear all about that in this episode. You're also going to hear me rant about wolves a little bit uh, and bring you up to speed on some things that are happening out west with the wolf population so make sure you stay tuned for that part also make sure you are going to apple Podcasts and leaving us a review give us a few stars there five stars preferably and make sure you take time and and write a line or two keep us at the top of the search engine itunes is a search engine and every time we get a review it keeps us at the top of that we try to bring you the best in houndsman lifestyle and our adventures and good quality program and we need your help 
Another thing you can do to support the Houndsman XP podcast is go to dusupply.com, W Hunting Supply. Go to their website at dusupply.com, find Join the Fight page, and order one of our t-shirts. We need your support to keep going with this show, so we would really appreciate it. The t-shirt is well-designed and wears very well, so it's a long sleeve black t-shirt. Look for it on dusupply.com on join the fight page also we are in the process of revamping what we are doing with our social media platforms you can find us on facebook at houndsman xp podcast and you can find us on instagram at houndsman underscore xp underscore podcast instagram and facebook so make sure you're going there finding us following us we want to get those followers up Uh, The other thing we are going to really double down on is sharing issues that you're facing across this country on our social media pages. Just today, we released a uh, bill or a house resolution out of Iowa that deals with hounds and trespassing. So it was submitted to me by a listener just like you who is concerned about what's going on in his neighborhood. So join the fight and preserve, promote, and protect hound sports. Make sure you're checking out our really good friends at Carnivore TV and Burnham Brothers Game Calls. Gary Robertson is a stand-up guy that uh, has become a very good friend of Houndsman XP. And his, uh, his game calls are worthy of you looking at but but gary and i got to spend a lot of time out there in vegas together we hunted together in arizona for the freedom hunters hunt and then we spent a lot of time walking around the shot show and gary's just a super dude uh we ate dinner together and had a good time and he's just a joy to be around he's a real deal so make sure you're checking out carnivore tv on the pursuit up app on your phone or the pursuit channel and also burnham brothers game calls got to spend some time at the shot show with my buddy mark zepp you're going to hear his name mentioned in this episode of the podcast make sure you're checking out mark zepp as well he's got clothes he's got dog boxes he's got coon squallers he's been a huge supporter of ours so a big shout out to mark zepp And one last thing, get involved in your local hound organizations, your state organization, national organization. We need all hands on deck right now to help secure the future of our freedoms to free cast hounds and enjoy this lifestyle as houndsmen. You can make a difference and your help is needed now. So at the cost of a few Mountain Dews a month, few cups of coffee a couple cans of chew you can make a difference from where you're at without any further delay enjoy this podcast i am happy to be back Today, we're going to be talking with Chris uh, about the Houndsman XP 
Western tour that just uh, finished with Chris returning back home to Bear Branch, Indiana. How are you, Chris? I am back in the saddle. One day after, I don't know how many miles I put in yesterday. I think I, man, I don't even know. I think I set my odometer. I think it's around 1,800 miles driving home in the last three days from uh, Swan Valley, Montana. And after being on the road for a month, and we've talked about this before. So, you know, we've talked about that analogy, lock your wife and the and your dog in the trunk for 30 minutes and see who's happier to see you. And uh, <laughs> when I get home, <laughs> my coon hunting boxer, Roxy, couldn't contain herself. She was overwhelmed at the fact I was home, and Carrie was pretty happy. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, that's a win-win, right? Yeah, 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 so... Uh, yep. Well, you know, that's a shout out to Carrie. You know, she kind of gave you up for a whole month there and gave you your wings, so to speak, to get out there and do some things that all of us hounds people love to do. And, uh, so, uh, shout out to Carrie. Yeah. For... She, she was pretty tolerant of the whole thing and, and never had a crossword to say about it. And it was kind of multifaceted this whole trip you know we started in arizona and then made some stops in in uh las vegas for the shot show and made yeah. a lot of good contacts for houndsman xp at the shot show working with uh freedom hunters there but uh, gary robertson was at the at the show and we ate dinner every night and of course our old buddy calvin redhouse and i were palling around you probably saw some of that on social media but uh you know, so it was multifaceted. It wasn't just me heading out to, to go run my hounds different places. It was as much about getting exposure for the Houndsman XP brand and the Hounds Houndsman lifestyle. Well, yeah, and uh, hats off to you for doing that, Chris. Uh, something that I uh, I think I'm uh, talking with uh, – uh, Terry Walker, the publisher of Full Crime Magazine, that uh, goes out to uh, the SHOT Show each year. And we talked at the Grand American recently about uh, possibility possibility of me going out next year. And uh, that's something I've always wanted to do. That Man, that thing is huge, isn't it? There are 30 miles of booths. Think about that. 30 miles of booths in the SHOT Show. And what the SHOT Show is, it stands for... Uh, shooting hunting outdoor trade show so every vendor of anything that has to do with shooting or hunting if some that you've never even heard of are there you know up and coming companies they've got a whole section of new products that you you have to be you have to have the credentials even to get in and they won't allow you to photograph any of that stuff um you know, Mossy Oak was there in full stride with their new lines. Um, it is it is a culture all of its own, and it's only open to exhibitors or vendors. So it's not open to the general public. So it really is kind of an exclusive deal to get in the door and, and even see it, but then to be there interacting with Savage Arms, Ruger Arms, Leupold, Trigicon, Hornady, any name that you can think of that has to do with our hunting was there. Garmin had a beautiful booth set up. Our old buddy Mark Zepp was sit, standing there working the floor. Um, houndsmen, hunters, all kinds of people that are interested in Garmin were just uh, wearing those guys out. And uh, 
the cool thing so these companies actually bring this huge display the big companies will bring their display that may take up you know half of a, of a like a hundred by hundred foot area and they bring an office with them and they are having meetings the whole time they're there and if you can get your foot in the door to get in one of those offices then you're doing something so it's it's big business it's big business no no doubt and it, to me it's just great to know that the outdoor uh uh lifestyle i guess we'd say is that popular is drawing that much attention from that many companies um we hear so much chris about how there's a decline in hunting and hunters and and all that but apparently when you look at it from the commercial standpoint it's still doing pretty well yeah and i this past week i well more than the past week i mean when you're on the road as much as i've been you've you've got a lot of time to think and and think about things you see i really believe that we have seen that pendulum swing as far as it can swing for hunting i think it is going to start swinging back we've got a whole i was really encouraged by the demographics at the shot show there were people of all ages all persuasions that were there at that show and they know what that shot what shot stands for it stands for shooting hunting outdoor trade show and nobody was offended about dead animals nobody was offended about um you know guns laying on the table there were more guns in that place and nobody got shot so you know no gun yeah. guns jumped off the table and ran around the place and and conducted a mass shooting you know every everybody that was there <laughs> excuse me i know you get all choked up about yeah, this because it's so close to your heart right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly okay so now that i've got my emotions back in check and i'm collected the point i was trying to make is there are, there are several divides in hunting in our outdoor lifestyle and we put up a lot of those barriers but i was encouraged to see the younger people there that were looking for ways to get involved in the outdoor lifestyle i mean that's that's basically what it was and and uh it was encouraging well yeah it is definitely and uh, as i you know a fairly new guy to instagram uh social media having been a kind of a facebook junkie for several years i uh, i see a lot of young people exhibiting their photos and, and talking about the outdoors on Instagram. And uh, I'm trying to get tuned into that sort of thing. But for an old dog like me, it's great to see that there are young people getting involved. And, uh, you know, here on our local level in Florida, there's a big push through our uh, state association here, especially the uh, PKC Association, to conduct youth hunts on wildlife management areas to as a gateway to bring young hunters in to the hound sports and at the same time to open those gates to all uh, two hound hunters in some of the uh, WMAs that are now closed to hound hunting. So at any rate, um, yeah, all good stuff, encouraging for sure. Yeah, and we need we need every person. We can't afford to. You know, set ourselves up on this elitist pedestal 
and say, you know, the way you hunt is not is not welcome here. You know, I don't care if it's if somebody is out there for no other purpose than providing organic meat for their table, I am glad to have them. You know, and and just like your state organization down there, the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance just got done with a uh, they'll have their banquet this weekend tomorrow night. Um February 8th it'll be over by the time this podcast comes out but they just did a uh, they they just finished up with their their annual youth hunt at Crosley Fish and Wildlife Area partnering with the DNR to get hunters in the woods young hunters in the woods and and it doesn't matter if that person is not a dyed in the wool hunter or he doesn't hunt the way you do or whatever that's a kid that has been exposed to the positive side of hunting and now he's got a face to put with that guy that he's, you know, that, that he's hearing all these horror stories about and thinking, you know, I went hunting with those guys one time. I had a good time. I think, I think this is wrong. I think what I'm being told here is wrong. So it, it's valuable on so many levels and, and we just can't afford to, you know, be kicking anybody to the curb in this current climate with, with, uh, hunting and fishing. That's right, Chris. Uh, I think that was proven with our um, Freedom Hunters event with Tanner Babb and how that uh, Tanner had never been exposed, really, to hound hunting. And, you know, one week in the uh, Navajo Nation, and he was ready to buy a a, a (laughs) hound dog pup, you know, and and looking forward to to bringing his son into the lifestyle and uh so yeah definitely you know i thought about too about a recent podcast we did uh, the q a one with nick gilliland and we talked about this thing of you know hunting groups saying well it's okay if you go along with us but we don't want you to bring your dog um you know we've got this fine-tuned pack here we don't want anybody messing it up type thing that kind of elitist attitude is very harmful to the hound sports uh, and uh, uh, you know uh, clubs whether it's a coon club rabbit club whatever uh, sometimes I think people tend to think well we don't want these guys to come in because they'll beat us you know their dogs will outperform our dogs those kind of feelings are are really uh, harmful to our sport and we all need to be on our toes that we're not entertaining those kind of attitudes when it comes to bringing new people in. Yeah, yeah, I agree with with that. But I, I'll play the devil's advocate a little bit. So remember our buddy Randy Smith, you know, he talked about paying your dues and mm-hmm. and being a willing willing mentee, you know, willing to take advice from the mentor, uh, the people that do have have that sort of stuff so if you are getting that kind of response from hunting groups maybe you need to roll up your sleeves and and show that you're willing to pay your dues you're willing to walk to that tree that that doesn't have your dog on it or help drag that bear out that you didn't shoot or judge a cast that you don't have a dog in you know oh yeah i think there's some value to that too and i'll probably be you know maybe not the most popular point of view because it's old-fashioned but there's nothing in this world that's free and if you want to be widely accepted sometimes you got to pay some dues and they see you're ready to work and you'll i think you'll i think you'll gain that status within the sport 
Well, I agree, Chris, of course. And and uh, I think there's a lot to be said in our name, Houndsman XP, Extreme Performance. Uh, it does take people to the people that are successful in catching game or breeding dogs or whatever aspect of this hound sport or lifestyle that we uh, choose to participate in, uh, it's going to take a lot of dedication. It's going to take a lot of dues paying, as you say, to get to that level where we do gain the respect of our fellow hunters. So it's not like you get a participation uh, trophy (laughs) in this sport this lifestyle as i I, i'll correct myself once more but um yeah i agree with you you know Uh, and and you know not not to you know totally kick what you said to the curb that's not what i'm trying to do at all i just think that um yeah i'll take i'll give you an example an analogy okay i will see posts on social media of a guy with his kids out hunting and they'll be sitting in a blind and say they're turkey hunting. And I've seen this actual post. You know, dad takes the kid out there, five years old. The only thing dad's thinking about is if I can just get him a shot on a turkey, he'll be hooked for life. And then he pans over to his kid, and his kid's sitting there with an iPad playing some game on his iPad to keep him busy. You know, just for the, yeah, I don't get that mindset, you know, mm-hmm. make that kid, if, if that kid's truly, when I was, when I was young and I, I've done this, raised my kids this way, you've got to put in your dues. It's not always going to be about you and, and you being successful. You know, I just can't, I, I can't wrap my mind around this deal where we think that we've got to set, it's not always a success. It's not always a success, and sometimes it's a lot of work. I've told my son, you know, when men endure hardships together, then they forge deep bonds. And some of those hardships are being cold, being miserable, but after it's all over, you look back at it and say, man, our bond's stronger now. And sometimes our newer hunters a lot of times have this expectation that they're, you know, they are getting that participation ribbon. I've got a dog box. I've got an antenna on my truck. I'm a bear hunter. Well, the guys that are real bear hunters don't always see it that way. And we got to have that realistic expectation too. But for anybody to sit back and say, you know, no, you can't participate or, or we want to be elitist and, and we're, we're scared to let new people. That's wrong too. I mean, we've got to find that happy medium on that. Well, we do, but, and, and guys, my age, uh, you know, we were raised in this era where there was satisfaction in hard work. Uh, there was satisfaction in knowing that that big pile of uh, gravel became a, a very small pile due to the sweat e- equity that we put into it. You know, I mean, that th- that was the way I was raised. Uh, you know, I didn't – did I want to get out there and hoe those long rows of corn in my dad's <laughs> garden? Absolutely not. Would I rather been playing baseball or all? But, you know, at the end of that row and to look back and see it all done, there was satisfaction in that. And I just wonder today if we're providing that kind of satisfaction to young people. You know, do we get, you know, like you say, you know, uh, to get out there and harvest that bear in a rough place? 
teamwork, bring it up out of that canyon, get it back to the vehicle so everybody can get a grip and grin shot with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's a tremendous sense of accomplishment in that. And I'm afraid that by trying to make everything easy, uh, we we're actually depriving uh, these youngsters of that that privilege. Does that make sense, or yeah. is that just no? An old I think guy so. Talk? You know, I think I think um, you know when the, when that kid, we need to celebrate that success, and and somebody. Somebody in that group, the leaders of the group, need to turn around to that 13-year-old kid that helped drag that bear out and say, man, you did a good job dragging that bear out. We couldn't have done that without you. You know, Exactly. Thanks for packing, mm-hmm. you know, carrying our pack out while we drug the bear out. You know, thanks for leading mm-hmm. that dog out and make them feel involved, and you're going to develop that, that desire in that, that young hunter or a 20-some-year-old hunter that's going to say, Hey, I want to be a part of this. I want, I, I can't wait for my chance and I'm going to, I'm going to get there, but it, the chance wasn't today. So, yeah, well, and it, and I can't help but go here. And I know this is probably not going to be real popular with some people, but you know, often what happens is, you know, we go, we, the dogs get in there and they tree and we take this kid in and we help him hold the gun and we help him <laughs> make the shot and we drag the bear out, and we go through all the pain, the sweat, and everything else, the kid, and then when it's time to take a picture, we go over and high-five him and say, man, you did a great job today. You know, you got your yeah. bear. You <laughs> exactly. Know? And exactly. this kid is like, oh, I did. Well, that was easy. <laughs> yeah, that was easy. You know, and- I guess. But, yeah, we want to do those things for the kids, but we also want them to be a part. And yeah. being part of the work and the effort and putting the time in and all that is all part of it. Yeah. And uh, and the rewards are greater when you do that. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't – it this isn't just a, a preaching session for newbies or whatever no. it's uh, – or the old-timers. <clears throat> this applies across the board. I just came off of a four-week trip where I was the guest everywhere I went. So right. Just be a good well, guest. Well, that's what be- happens when you're famous, you know? <laughs> I forced myself on them. They, uh, they didn't have any choice. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm standing in the Rocky Mountains with Larry Anderson, my buddy from, from Montana, and, uh, you know, he says, hey, you know, I, I, I don't think your dogs are going to be able to take this track. Let me turn one of my older dogs loose. You know, you gotta you got to be – why you got to be smart enough to realize that this guy's got experience and and you just go with the flow and be a good guest be gracious you'll get your chance so mm-hmm. i found that a lot you know um everything from we we're going to get into this whole western tour there's all there are so many stories that i can't even I, we, we could fill up three podcasts with it so we'll get into that well, you know, I think that the thing about this this Western tour for me, which I only participated in the first week of it, uh, you then went ahead and and put three more weeks into it, uh, was that it was a great time, but it was not particularly successful in terms of. Uh, animals harvested or treed or caught, whichever term you want to use, but it was still a great time. Oh, it was a blast. I mean, just being out there, I, 
I posted some stuff on social media during the trip uh, of the of the good times we were having. Uh, one one particular post I remember is when I was on the Red Rocks up there. Lauren took the picture uh, of me standing on the edge of the rocks with jazz, and we're overlooking this beautiful country. Uh, there are thousands of people that drive through the Navajo Nation. There are very few people that have seen it from the angle that we saw it while we were there. And that's the intrinsic value of it. You know, did we catch it? Did we catch a mountain lion for Tanner on that trip on that part of the trip? No, we didn't. We treat one beforehand a day early. Uh, but just the intrinsic values of being there and, and being there with my hounds participating Mm. was, was very valuable. And, and it's a, a memory that, that can't be replaced. Yeah, a lot of times we measure by how much games caught and how but I'll tell you what, those those I learned a lot, the dogs learned a lot, and I know we, we try to put value on that and it's not the same as, as being able to post grip and grins and and lions and trees and stuff like that. But the relationship I forged with Calvin Redhouse, it didn't <laughs> matter whether you treat a lion every day. I mean that's a solid relationship. Kevin Hall stopping in there. We didn't even turn a dog loose and just spending time with Kevin and Nancy Hall of Dogs Are Treed. You know, that's a relationship that will continue to groom in the future. Um, you know, the relationships I built at the SHOT Show. And then you go on up to, to Montana and what we did up there, uh, the people I met and the places I got to go and the things I got to see and can't take that lightly well you know i i guess i learned or developed that mindset at a very young age uh and it's primarily due to my dad my dad was never a houndsman that hunted particularly for the kill uh it it didn't matter if we were you know coon hunting uh or if it was bear hunting or whatever we fishing whatever uh, it was the experience. And I, I guess I learned that early on. And there was something within me that would just the, it, when the fall of the year came, just to be able to take that gun out of the cabinet, smell that gun oil, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. gunpowder and walk out there with those crisp leaves crunching underfoot and smell that smell of the fall. Uh, those were all things that were just burrowed very deeply down into the center of me from a very young age. And if I, yeah, you know, the younger we are, the more we want to kill things, you know, I mean, we want to come home. I can remember the thrill of walking home uh, for the first time with the weight of a, of a squirrel in my hunting coat, you know, and, and, and reaching back there and feeling that, that squirrel and knowing that I had been successful yeah, that was a big rush. But for those same, in that same scenario, I've walked home after school many a time at dark with my shotgun over my shoulder and nothing in that game bag and happy as a pig in mud because I'd got to spend the afternoon out in the woods. You weren't hoeing your dad's corn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I was going to have to do that <laughs> before he got home on the weekend. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like my, my planning as a kid, you know, it'd be like, 
well, I could run down to the creek and, and try to set a few traps and or, or do this or do that. Uh, I think I've still got time to get the green beans weeded before Dad gets home. So <laughs> I've been there and done that. But you're exactly right. I mean, if if you go strictly on game caught on this trip, I think vast majority of hunters would say the trip was a failure. We had bad weather. I mean, bad weather on the reservation. We had it on in Montana. Um, we had wolves th- that were covering us up. There were a lot of things that that prohibited us from being successful. The lions that we did get on and we did turn loose on, we treed. So, yep. you know, it's it's you can't just measure the if we just measure the success of our hunts on game on the ground or game in the trees, then that's pretty shallow well i think this breaks down to any area of the hound sport if you're a coon hunter that goes to a night hunt you're a beagler that goes to a field trial uh or or a squirrel hunter that hunts in competition or whatever and and you go uh with the attitude if i don't win i'm not gonna have fun i'm not gonna have a good time then you're probably chances are at least 50 percent of the time you're not going to have a good time but if you go for the idea of being out there and participating and playing that game, if uh, whatever it may be with your dogs, or if you're just out there, you know, on a pleasure hunt with your dogs by, by themselves, you know, yeah. uh, it, it's all the experience. And, and it's really hard to explain that, I guess, to a new uh, a hunter or a young hunter uh, that maybe has focused on the idea of I've got to, I've got to catch an animal, in order to have a good time. Well, in this lifestyle, for me at least, uh, and for my dad that taught me, uh, you know, that was never the primary focus. The most accomplished townsman I know, Steve. Whether it be you can go to the, I've been to the big events, the big PKC events, big UKC events. I've hunted in the West with, with houndsmen, but the most accomplished hunters I know, you know, you see these houndsmen will come in after a cast and everybody wants to know, did you do any good? And they say, nope, I didn't have any, I, I got beat tonight. And they're not looking for ways to complain about somebody cheating them or, or, you know, you've got, you've got certain people that come in that, that every time they lose, they got cheated. And then you've got <laughs> then you've got the accomplished hunters, houndsmen that come in, and I got beat, and they accept it. You know, you look at guys. We could name names, but you, we know who they are. It's just part of it. You're not going to be successful every night or every time you go. And I see the same thing on this western hunt. You know, was I disappointed that we didn't? tree more lions in the swan valley which last year we went out there and treed three in two days or something crazy um and this year Mm -hmm. we treed one in in nine days of hunting and larry and i still had a good time we still knew that all those things were out of our control we can't control the weather our dog's feet were getting ground up by it would get up to 40 to 50 degrees during the day melt the top of the snow lions bobcats whatever walk right over it you don't have a visible track if you do find a track and you turn loose on it we had blood in the you know the feet the dog's feet were actually bloody in the in the snow so we knew we couldn't keep that up um sure and then you get then you do get the snowfall 
and you're headed up the trail and you find these lion tracks you want to turn loose on and you go 20 more yards and you find a pack of five wolves and i'm not talking little wolves these are full-grown canadian gray wolves that have been forced introduction down the throats of of our western sportsmen and i actually saw those wolves up on the mountain 300 yards above us they were standing there looking at us and it was weird uh, when when they realized that i was seeing them when i locked those eyes with them then boom they took off running so that's mm. a whole that's a whole topic is the wolf problem in the west oh yeah so big time yep yeah, well, that's it. I mean, if if I were to take a young person under my wing today, I would be all about teaching that kid about the the dogs, the you know the sounds of their voices, uh, the way that they uh, try, uh, you know, are able to track and tree and all of the things that go along with that. And uh, the the beautiful woods. That's why we go to Arkansas every year. It's it's never been about going out there to kill a lot of coons. Uh, it's always for my buddy Nubbin and me. It's just to get in those beautiful woods, to walk out there in those huge oak timber, in that huge oak timber, and it's like a cathedral. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's an awesome experience. And to be able to relate that to a new person is what, you know, uh, will, I think will actually hook them and keep them hooked, so to speak, for a lifetime because it's not superficial. You know, it's not just about the catching of the game. And, you know, on our Freedom Hunters hunt, you know, you didn't mention here, but, you know, we got blindsided right out the gate there with the closing the areas that we intended to hunt. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, that, I really, Calvin was great. I mean, he took it on. He said, well, you know, we've got more areas to hunt. Let's go. You know, we had to drive. But I know he was disappointed because he knew he'd done his homework. He had scouted the area out. He knew where there were some lions that we could run. But it didn't work out. But did that hinder us from having a great time? <laughs> a lot of laughs. Oh, trying yeah. To fo- trying to follow Ricky Bobby yeah. on those narrow trails. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, and the same thing ha- same thing happened all the way up into the swan. I mean, we're, we we broke stuff. We, we got trucks stuck. I got my truck stuck. Larry got his truck stuck. You know, it was just, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't from a lack of trying, I can tell you that, and it wasn't from a lack of dog power either because um, Larry Anderson's got one of the finest packs of, of blue ticks that that um, of, of big game hounds that you're going to find anywhere. So, And then my pot lickers were doing what they could to, to support that. So, Well, you know, that's, I, I enjoyed very much the videos you posted, you know, and when I saw you guys winching the truck out of the ditch and, uh, and all that stuff. And, you know, we got into that a little bit with, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, deal out there with Shorty Gorham in South Texas, you know, after a rain, you know, and we got, we thought we were going to be back in that Texas ranch country for quite a while. And, uh, and we weren't, but uh, yeah, we, we got were that, able to get it out. But, we got uh, that Ford F two fifty out there. I thought it was going to come apart. That was an that was a 
testament to to the toughness of a Ford F two fifty that day. That's for sure. That whole frame was shaking when he when we backed off that road and got stuck over in the ditch. You know, we threw those branches and logs and everything we could find in there, and the, the whole cab and everything was shaking. I thought we're still going to be walking. You know, <laughs> hitching a ride on an oil truck out of here or something. Well, that's the thing about a four wheel drive. It'll just get you stuck in worse places <laughs> than you could yeah. with a two wheel drive. That's for sure. Man, I remember those old days, you know, jacking the truck up. It's all high centered, putting breaking limbs and stuff and sticking them under the wheels to try to break build it up and you know we didn't have winches and all this fancy equipment back in the day you know we we might have had a a manual come along or something if we could find something to hook it to but uh, but that's all part of the experience of this hound hunting game you know and uh and you're not going to be a metrosexual guy in skinny jeans (laughs) on in manhattan uh out there doing what we're doing uh but we're having a ball doing it, and I would dare say a lot more fun um, than than that guy. So, yeah, I, you know, you look at Instagram and and uh, the social media platforms, and you'll see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have been successful on a lion, on a lion hunt, and a lot of them aren't houndsmen. You know, they went there, they paid money, they flew, they flew in. They had somebody scouting those lions. You know, they they had all those things already lined up for them. All they had to be able to do is walk to the tree, pull a trigger, and get their picture taken. Everything else was taken care of for them. Right. You know, the houndsmen are the guys that are out there, you know, winching trucks out and and fixing tracks on buggies and and you know one thing after another, feeding dogs. You know, all those things go into it. So. There was a lot of good experience and and uh, things that we did that that you know I got to live in the West for a month and uh, and see see the good and the bad. So it was experience for sure. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row, and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherald.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. 
Well, that country out there is worth the trip, anybody's trip. Um, you know, I, I didn't get to get up into the Rockies in Montana like you did or in Utah, but I did uh, certainly enjoy the Navajo Nation and the those uh, views from any direction, you know, every day, a different view, a different uh, uh, Kodak moment, so to speak. But uh, just, just, um, and that's, you know, Chris, that's this lifestyle that we've chosen for ourselves, or maybe it chose us. I think in my experience, uh, it, it seems like that I was captivated by hounds and hunting from the, my very earliest memories. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad, as I said before, you know, he was a guy many times would walk up to a coon tree and not even look up the tree, just, uh, you know, encourage the dogs and enjoying, uh, the activity of being there. And a guy that rarely carried a weapon with him on a bear hunt. Uh, mainly we handled the dogs, you know, we knew, uh, if we were handling the dogs and we got a track as we walked from one ridge to another, those dogs were going to blow out of there and we not, weren't going to get to hear much of the race. And somebody else was going to get to the tree and see the bear and maybe harvest the bear. And we knew all that, but still we chose to go with the hounds. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. You know the, the unit we hunted in the Swan Valley there, that's a draw unit. I didn't have it. I didn't draw a tag for that. I just had a general mountain lion hunting license. So we were hunting that unit with the full expectation that, that nobody in our party could even could even pull a trigger on a mountain lion or a bobcat. The quota was already closed on bobcats. So, you know, you talk about you talk about hauling a truckload of hounds for four weeks across the West with the full expectation that I'm never going to shoot anything. My wife looks at me and she's like, you know, I sent her pictures home of, of the lines we treat. She's like, did you shoot it? And I was like, no. And why wouldn't you shoot it? Well, for one thing, it's illegal. But for the other thing, you know, for the other reason is I'm not there to, to, to kill lions. If, if I w I'm not against it, I'm not opposed to it, but I'm there to work dogs. I'm there to get experience. I'm, you know, those sort of things share good times. So that's what it was about. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, uh, you know, I have to explain that, too, from time to time, um, you know, uh, to Ella about the fact that we had a great hunt. We didn't maybe catch any game. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that has always been the thrill of the hounds, the sound of the chase, watching the dogs work, seeing how well they were able to work that bad track. Uh, I enjoyed very much uh, out uh, hunting with Calvin, watching his dogs each day. Um, I've never experienced the dry ground lion hunting type thing, and we were doing some of that out there. We had snow at higher elevations, as you remember, but uh, a lot of the time, you know, the dogs were were attempting to trail those trails, those tracks on on dry ground. In fact, I think the line that you guys uh, treat the day earlier, didn't you? Wasn't that a dry ground track? Yeah, the whole thing was dry ground. And, uh, you know, we ended up being able to tree that line. But the snowpack was so thin up in, in Montana that even some of that was would be considered dry ground. Um, 
there wasn't any snow up there to speak of. There, the bases of the trees and stuff all had 15-foot circles around them where the snow had melted off. Um, there was still snow on the high peaks and stuff like that and snow on the trails. You could have chained up and, and got up there in a truck, a lot of them. You saw the video of where we tried to do that one yeah. time and trying to turn around and, and high-centered uh, that Toyota. And, and somebody made a comment, if you would have chained all fours, you would have, you would have made it. Well, not when you're sitting on the frame, you know, the, the, it, it goes right down. It dug through the, the snowpack and, and, uh, there wasn't any coming out of there without a winch. I don't care if, if, uh, what you would have done prior to that. So that's all part of it. But so some of the things that I did get to do that, that, um, were crazy. I mean, you talk about moving in Indiana hillbilly out of his comfort zone so we decided to uh (laughs) (laughs) we we'd been hunting for a week we'd treed one lion we had rain moving in we had high winds coming in and uh uh so larry wanted to run over to idaho and look at some some areas that for future bear hunting and stuff and i'm thinking yeah we got a few days let's roll and i drove and going over lolo pass from missoula into uh kuskia idaho is an experience on on dry ground and uh, it was a real experience because they had snow up high and here i am white knuckling this this steering wheel all the way over that pass and i looked at my phone at one time i think that passes at 9300 feet but then then you drop into the idaho side and it's 100 miles of the Frank Church Wilderness, running right right next to the uh, uh, Lashkar River, all the way down through there, Lockshaw River, all the way down through there, the same route that Lewis and Clark took, um, and just steep mountains going up both sides of this Lockshaw, all the way down through there, and it was just amazing, especially when you would stop and you would read the uh, uh, placards on the side of the road that that's the same route that Lewis and Clark took when in 1806. So <laughs> there was no pavement. There were no guardrails. You know, it was just 26, 27 guys that, that got a call from the president of the United States and, and said, Hey, uh, Meriwether Lewis, what do you think about leading an expedition into this country? We have no idea what's there. We don't know if you're going to make it. We don't know if you're going to live or not. Um, we'll supply you everything you need to a certain point, and then you're on your own. Um, j- just taking that all into consideration and seeing that country where they came came through and stuff, I mean, it, it is a humbling experience and really makes you question how tough you really are. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I just recently, it's interesting you say that, I uh, uh, watch a, a program, I think maybe it's on History Channel, but I'm not sure, but they it's a new show that uh, aired this this year about uh, the River of No Return and uh, the Salmon River uh, and some of that area there that uh, you're talking about in the Frank uh, where, uh, you know, the, uh, Lewis and Clark at one point, I think they wrote, or one of them, uh, maybe it was, was it Lewis that, that was there or were they both together at that point? I, I didn't get that. I'm going to have to do some research. It really sparked yeah. my interest to do more history checking on that. I'm vaguely familiar with it, but no. I don't know. Yeah. I know they were about starved rugged. to death right there. Mm-hmm. They about yeah. starved to death in that country. And you'd think being there, uh, 
you know, the game would be plentiful. And if it hadn't have been for Sacagawea hooking up with them and guiding them through there, they probably would have died right there in the right. in that wilderness. Yeah, I I really enjoyed at the what was it the bicentennial or or whatever of the of the uh, 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 of the Lewis and Clark expedition, all the programming that was out there yeah. and the materials, and I read a couple of books about it and all, and I still just you know marvel at the tenacity of those guys and able to to do what they did, you know and. Uh, and, yeah, because it's rough in a four wheel drive, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, you know, you get to Idaho side, and it was the road was pretty good. Uh, Montana, their road budget must not be what Idaho's is, or I, I don't know why, but it seemed like as soon as we hit the state line, then then the roads cleared off. But still, those winding roads, those downgrades, stuff like that. Then we go on over to Grangeville. We spend some time there, and and we go up into this country uh, up by uh, Orfino. Idaho and in, dropping into the clear water and you'd be surprised I was surprised so we get north of Grangeville there and it's this big beautiful agricultural area it's rolling but it really doesn't look a whole lot different than what I would see in in northern Indiana here and mm. um, amazing country and I'm just like wow I would have never guessed that this was here and we the state road turns into a black cinder road and we keep going and it's like, are we on the right road? Yeah, we're on the right road. Just keep going. All of a sudden this sucker drops off into this Canyon and, um, I'm on a black cinder road now. And I think I've got Hills and driving's treacherous here in, in bear branch, Indiana. I'm telling you what I dropped over that, over that Ridge into that Canyon and to one side of my truck and this road's probably, you know, 15 feet wide. Mm. One side of my truck. Plenty of room. Oh, all kinds of room. And and don't mind the, don't even pay attention to those, you know, where the snow's been melting off of the, the sheer rock cliffs to your, to your passenger side and running off the 1500 foot drop on your driver's side. You know, don't mind those icy spots that froze all night. And I'm, I looked at Larry and I was just like, <laughs> I'm not used to this kind of driving. You know, and he's just laughing. Just he's like, "You'll make it. You'll be fine." But you talk about bringing me out of my comfort zone a lot right then. I was just like, "Holy crap!" I hope I don't meet anybody on this road. I'm going to have have rock scratches all the way down the passenger side because I'm getting up next to that rock wall right there. And uh, it was crazy. It was crazy. And you know what? The cra- it, this is the most amazing thing. I decided right there that. 50 years old, I don't know that I'm tough enough to hunt in that area. I really don't. I mean, that is a whole nother, uh, that is a whole different experience. And we're passing trucks with dog boxes that are hunting that area. So my hat goes off to anybody that's hunting from a hat, with a hound in the Frank Church or up along the Clearwater those are some tough individuals that are pursuing their hounds in in that country. It's amazing. No doubt. No doubt. I get that feeling, having been a plot man for many, many years, and when I go to the Smoky Mountain region, and I know that those mountains, on are, the mountains back east here are nothing compared to the Rockies, but they are, uh, you know, those some of those peaks are up around 6,000 or so, but it's very, very steep very rocky, very rugged. And I think about the day that those, the, 
those mountaineer hunters hunted that all on foot. They didn't have, you couldn't even take a mule up those ridges, you know, I mean, and and how they hunted. And I read the stories of how they struck a bear and it went all the way over the, what they called Smoky Mountain, you know, the main, Mm -hmm. uh, the main mountain up there. I think Clingman's dome is over 6,000 feet and, and drop over into the Tennessee side and then their dogs, somebody passes the word along, uh, hand to mouth or whatever, that so-and-so has the dogs over on the other side. And what's there to do but walk over there and get them, you know? Yeah. And, then, and it just amazes me that that what they were able to do. Yeah, not taking anything away from the, the hunters in, in Appalachia, but, uh, you know, you think of guys oh, like, yeah. like Barry Tarleton that, the of Houston Valley plots that talks about the days when they would follow the hounds through the mountains and and hunt bear off a of foot before telemetry and and radios and all that stuff. Their only option was to walk with the hounds. Well, somebody asked a question a few years ago on social media. Where's the toughest place you ever hunted? And uh, everybody thinks where they hunt's the toughest place. That country right there that I just came from along the clear water and and down the lockshaw river i mean it it is bad news and it it (laughs) there's some terms that i could i could use to describe the type of men that hunt that area but they're probably not appropriate for mixed audiences you know (laughs) let's just say they probably leave tracks in the snow behind them that's all i'm you know more than footprints (laughs) Holy cow. I got you. These, yeah. So going across this Lockshaw River, there are these bridges that go across there. And the outfitters uh, will park their, their stock rigs down there. And these are big wooden bridges. I took some pictures, maybe some video of one of them. Uh, I don't know if I posted it yet. But uh, as you look across the river, the only thing across from where you're standing on that road is a mountain that goes up. And we walked across there. And these outfitters and houndsmen are walking across that river and hitting that trail on the other side. But can you imagine riding a horse, leading five mules behind you, all strung together, and going into the Frank Church wilderness on a thing that's no wider than, than the trail is literally no wider than, than the largest laptop computer. No wider than that. And they're riding up into that country. And... That's just that's just some tough stuff right there. Well, it's a whole different perspective on things. You know, we see the pictures. We sit back here and we read the stories in outdoor magazines. Uh, it's just like when I went to, up in Sunlight Basin there on the east side of uh, Yellowstone in Wyoming and uh looking at some of that country where the my friend Dean, Dean Carroll's son Dalen was, was going to be guiding sheep hunters up in that country and I, i'm just you know it's th- those days if i w- was ever able to do that and i think there may have been some days back in, oh sure when i was a young man i could have handled that okay but not today <laughs> Yeah. And I and yeah. guess what? I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's not totally true. I I love I would love I I realized uh this on our our uh 
trip out to the Navajo Nation that, you know, there were some times there where, you know, I had to stay back and kind of uh, be an observer and listen on the radio. And I don't, that goes against the grain with me, but I, I'm still out there doing what I can do. And that's, uh, and I, I intend to do that as long as I can. Sure. Yep. And it, it wouldn't have, it, it's possible because we actually saw along the Lockshaw there, we passed two or three rigs of, of uh, trucks with hounds in them. So those guys are hunting it, and it's a uh, it's a tough place to make a living. I can tell you that. So I'm gonna rant. <laughs> I want to rant about wolves a little bit. Go. You, you think I can rant about wolves for a few minutes? Absolutely. You can. This is your show. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. You know, <laughs> I couldn't help but think. While I was out there, you know, we watch the news and we 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 think about all of the things that are being forced down our throats. The, the things that we love to do, the freedoms that are being attacked. And I looked at this wolf track and I'm thinking, this is a forced introduction of a non-native species to the Rocky Mountain that's decimating the elk herds. That's the, uh, those wolves follow those elk herds. When the elk herds go low, the wolves go low. Um, all those deer, all those elk, everything, every ungulate on the landscape out there is sleeping with one eye open every night and trying to make a living with those wolves. But I thought, you know, and now this wolf track is interfering with my lifestyle. I cannot turn my hound loose on this prime line track because these Canadian gray wolves that were forced down our throat by the liberal left that thinks that is the answer to wildlife management. You know, we are kicking the most effective model for wildlife conservation, the North American model for wildlife conservation. There is nothing in the history of the world that has shown the success of that particular model. And then we introduce this non-native species into this ecosystem and we're just watching it degrade and crumble to the point where uh, the wildlife numbers are down, the, the herd numbers are down on our elk and our, our deer out there. And and it's now it's affecting my ability to turn my hound loose. So it got pretty personal for me and thinking about you know, what is it, what is it going to take and what's this, where's it going to stop? Well, I think most people would think that it's going to stop when these wolves are in the subdivisions and they're, you know, snacking on fluffy dog and, and they're snatching kids out of their strollers and, uh, and that, and, and it sounds extreme, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. And then we see Colorado now, have they actually reintroduced the wolf yet or are they just talking about it in colorado well one thing we one thing and and i'll just make a minor correction here if you say reintroduction of the canadian gray wolf to anybody that lives in the west mm. they're yeah. gonna they're gonna jump down your throat because that's a non-native species that's been okay. introduced it's been a forced introduction so right Colorado, I, I attended a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation seminar while I was at the SHOT Show and made some good contacts. We're going to talk to the guys that are working 
to fight this off, but it has not. It is a ballot measure in Colorado, but it has not been carried through yet. So some of the stakeholders there are, of course, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. You've got the Western Slope Cattle uh, Ranchers. Uh, You've got uh, Colorado Farm Bureau, who is working with the ag community to fight this thing. So it is not a done deal yet, but they want to introduce a 1,000 Canadian grays to the ecosystem in Colorado. Now think about this. Since 1990, the state of Colorado has had a huge push on the reinter- towards the rehabilitation of the moose. Mm-hmm. The moose in Colorado. And they've hu- seen huge dividends paying off on all that management work for the last the last 20 some years. In the Swan Valley, of Montana, you cannot find a moose. I'm sure they're there, but it's nothing like it used to be. And moose are easy prey for a pack of wolves in the deep snow. They will absolutely wipe them out. So you just take one one animal that Colorado, the hunters in Colorado have been putting money through Pittman-Robertson funds, all these hunters from back east that go to Colorado to buy license, all that money has been put to work to restore a struggling moose population, and now you've got the Chaco sandal-wearing metrosexuals from Boulder and Denver that think putting a wolf back on that landscape is a good idea. And they've pushed it to the point now where it's a ballot issue where the general public can vote on this and you know what happens when that starts you get all the infomercials that are that are misinformation if not outright lies to tell people that the wolf should live there and it will help with with all these things and wolf wolves change rivers and all this other garbage that you hear about the gray wolf and you're going to you're going to piss away millions of dollars of research just for the moose in case the elk aren't even at their at their goals by the what this is the thing there's wildlife professionals biologists that do nothing but track this data restore this data study this stuff and then you get this emotional push from the left to put a wolf in the middle of all that when the professionals are sitting over here saying Hey, our data doesn't support this. And to further exasperate the problem is the fact that by legislation, the professionals in Colorado Fishing Game and Parks are not allowed to come out and voice their opinions publicly about why this is a bad idea. Well, you know, and that's pretty much it, and it's all over. I know when uh, the last day that uh, we were in Arizona, um, we, oh, actually in New Mexico, we flew into Albuquerque. Uh, Lauren and I went to the Museum of Anthropology there at the University of New Mexico campus in Albuquerque, and what did we see there were these posters all over the place about supporting uh, our monument, the the Mexicans, our New Mexicans speak out for national monuments, and they want to make this this uh, wolf the, a national monument there, and uh, sticker bumper stickers, wolves belong, and uh, you know, and all all of this, and it's on college campuses is where we're seeing a lot of this. Uh, you know, uh, there was a poster that the Mexican wolf, the people in the land are intertwined. 
you know, and this Disney philosophy that the wolf can coexist um, is absurd, and yet um, it's embraced. It's embraced by those that are ignorant of the facts. It's ballot box biology. It's it's uh, you know where where anybody with an emotional opinion can vote on that, and you know I'm I'm not a marathon runner, so the Boston Marathon doesn't mean anything to me. I have no stake in the Boston Marathon, so why should I get a vote on how the Boston Marathon is run? Yeah, that's my. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's the same thing, and and the Mexican wolf isn't anything compared to this Canadian gray wolf. This Canadian, oh, no, you know, yeah. the, the Mexican. Not in size. Not in size, not in ferocity. We hunted among the, the Mexican wolves down in the White Mountains when I was out there with Sonny Tappy and sport, Sportsman for Heroes. And we hunted, those Mexican wolves are in the mountains. But you talk about the Canadian gray, that dude is nothing but a career killer. And... I talked to one houndsman that's lost 30 hounds since mm. 95 or 96. Uh, I, actually, I talked to a friend of his that he was telling me about that. He's lost 30 hounds, estimated, in that time period. You know, obviously it would be easiest to say, well, you shouldn't turn your dogs where, loose where the wolves are. But here's the real, here's the real scoop on that. Okay, you find a lion track, you do your due diligence to run the trails all around. You find the track, and then you run around and you try to find wolf tracks to see if it's safe to turn your dogs loose. You know, what if the wolf, and we're talking about in sections of trails where there's gate closures, we're talking thousands of acres of, of timbered land. If that wolf pack spent the night down below there and you got a snow on it that night, you're never going to see that wolf track. And you're going to turn your dogs loose in there. And within minutes, you'll be recovering collars, bells, and tracking collars. That's all you're going to have left. And I've heard stories like that coming out of the West for years. And it really hit home for me on this particular hunt. Because we did not turn loose on a lot of lion tracks because of these wolf tracks. And I'm talking fresh stuff. You know, we had a lion track. It's beautiful. A male and a female, walk, a Tom and a female walking down this trail. They were doing their little love frolicking and playing, and you could see where they rolled around in the snow and stuff. We go up the trail, and there's five wolf tracks. And I took my hat off, and I put, put it beside one of these tracks to give some perspective. That wolf track was as big as the round part of my hat. That's not, that's a freak. That's a freak of nature, and the only thing he's built for is to kill. Well, why do you think that the wolf was nearly uh, eradicated in the West? Was it because their pelts were so val- valuable? <laughs> no. no, history doesn't. History doesn't speak to that. Not you know? at all. You know, Not it, at all. If you read, uh, uh, what book was it about the? Uh, I can't remember the, but it was about a wolf hunter. I read a book one time about a wolf hunter. And it talked about the hard work that went in to eradicate the wolf from the Western landscape. And uh, my deep, my deep down feeling, Steve, is that this is is a flanking maneuver from the liberal left, the animal extremists, animal terrorists that want to fight against our way of life. 
to reintroduce this predator on the landscape that they know is not supposed to be there, but it's to defund wildlife agencies, drive down, drive down the, the purchase and sale of license in these western states, affect these economies until there is no hunting opportunity left. And, and you can see that in the West, you can see that in the Swan Valley, anybody you talk to, if you talk to any lifelong resident of the Swan Valley, they'll talk about the Shires Moose walking along this, uh, uh, Flathead river there, the river system there, and they can sit on, they could sit on their porches at night and hear the moose down there in the river, you know, grunting, fighting, Mm -hmm. antlers clashing, that's gone completely gone you know people that are lifelong residents talk about um you know how hazardous it was to even drive down the swan highway between kalispell and Seely lake because around every corner you know there's going to be a moose standing in the road or there's going to be deer standing in the road or there's going to be elk standing in the road i can tell you just from last year that the numbers have gone down i saw it last year i was amazed when i got in the swan valley i'm like holy crap, there's deer everywhere here. You know, of course, the snowpack had moved them down. But even the deer tracks up on the mountains where they should have been still were were completely down. And also, the elk sign was way down. We found one, one herd of about 20 cows. Um, and that's all we saw of elk the whole time I was there. Well, and, you know, we hear a lot about fake news today. But you hear these uh, so-called experts on the wall talk about the success of the introduction of wolves to Yellowstone. What a great success that was and how that they have positively impacted the ecosystem in Yellowstone and all without one word about the disappearance of the deer and elk and, and all that are the victims daily of these elk of these wolf uh packs so uh you know, you know you're not going to get the straight of it in the media or in the news not at um, all so let me relate a story to you i talked to a guy that works construction while i was out there and uh they were doing some work inside of yellowstone so they they as far as that is they would go in there and stay in one of the lodges and and they were remodeling uh some buildings in there he grew up there when he was a kid you know, people could go in there and you could see the elk herds and, and the deer, mule deer herds and, and all these ungulate populations on the landscape, mountain lions. And, and believe me, these, these wolves will eat a mountain lion too. Uh, the, the mountain lions aren't happy with them either. So they're affecting that part of our sport. But, okay, so now Yellowstone, the only thing, about the only thing you can go in Yellowstone and see now are buffalo. And... The wolves will eat a few buffalo, but but they're, those buffalo cows are good about putting the calves in the center and horns out and, and come and get it type attitude, and, and the wolves are smart enough not to try it. So what's happened is they've depleted that resource, and they're just pew, spreading out. Even when, they, even when they did that introduction back in 95, 96, I can't remember, you know, in the wildlife profession as a conservation officer, you know, you would think that I would be like, oh, you got to protect the wolf. My stance has always been, that's fine. You want to drop them on the Yellowstone National Park. Once they cross that boundary, it's open season. And and 
the left fights that with injunctions. The Western states are trying to, to manage their wolf population. Every time they turn around, they're getting held up on something with injunctions through the, the federal court. I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the aim. You know, if we can get everything tied up in court and drag it out over years and years, people will, will just get tired of fighting the battle and give up. Right. You know, and that's a strategy, I believe. Yep. Uh, and a lot of issues. But, uh, yeah, well, the the wolf for sure, uh, how devastating to a, to a hound's person that has put his uh, sweat and blood and many years into a breeding program and then not be able to let those dogs do what they were bred to do simply because of the uh, – the feel-good policies of these social justice warriors that that are so prevalent today. Uh, you know, everything is based on feeling. You know, um, you know, it's not two and what uh, two and two is it four? Uh, well, how do you feel about it being four? You know, um, yeah, that's exactly. the kind of thinking. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yep. and uh, there's no basis. Uh, uh, of reason uh, there at all and until it comes home uh, i remember when we had the the fight uh in 1997 i believe it was in michigan we talked about it with mike thorman on this uh, podcast uh, this the uh, bear issue in michigan you know and uh it wasn't until we were able to uh, build some commercials that showed um children that had been attacked um you know by bear in in areas that some of the uh, people begin to see there really does need to be a season on bears we can't let them be overpopulated we can't have them running uh, in the streets and in our backyards you know so maybe you know i don't know it may be too late for that sort of thing but i know that we have to fight it every step of the way uh, if we hope to have any kind of opportunity to hunt with hounds in the West, this wolf issue is going to have to be dealt with. Oh, it's happening in the East too, though. You look at you look at the UP of Michigan. You oh, look yeah. At, you look mm-hmm. at Wisconsin. You know, so it's affecting Maine. You look at all these places. It's coming to a neighborhood near you, and and houndsmen, regardless if you're a if you're a beagler, if you're a coyote hunter in the east, you've got to be paying attention. And that's that's always been our goal with this podcast is is to broaden the scope of people's vision. You know, and I can't help but think and believe with every fiber that this is nothing more than another attack by the liberal left to eliminate hunting on a broad scale. And you know, deer hunters need to be paying attention. And Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is leading the charge in Colorado, um, so they're on board. But we need to support these fights, and we need to we need to be aware of what they are, be able to talk intelligently about it, and then render whatever support we can give them. I don't care if you're turning a coon dog loose in Ohio, or a or a coursing dog loose in southern New Mexico. This is an attack and we've got to we've got to realize what it is and as i'm i'm thinking as you're talking chris that it also is important that we 
take this uh, these animal terrorists on at every level. You know, it doesn't matter. It may not be wolves here in Florida that we're dealing with, you know, but we need to take them on when they when these organizations come out uh, uh, with these anti tethering bills or these bills that say you can't leave a dog outside uh, unless it's uh, supervised and all of these um, attempts by these terrorists to take away our lifestyle have to be met head on with an organized effort. You have to get involved. Uh, you know, here in Florida, I know our friend Bruce Conkey is trying through his American Houndsman Federation um, to fight the fight here in the Southeast. Um, but wherever the enemy is, you know, we we have to take them on. We have to be organized. We have to say, no, this is not reasonable. Uh, and you know the the wildlife overall is what's going to suffer from this. Uh, and, and you cite that wildlife conservation model, which uh, you know really did turn things around in this country. Uh, but you know, if given uh, the whims of these feel-good anti-hunters, you know, the wildlife is going to be uh, in deep, deep trouble here in this country. I really believe that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And it's time that people need to be finding out. If you're in the Southeast, you need to find out about Bruce Conkey's organization down there and get involved. Get involved. It, the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance is going to have a banquet here. Um, get involved. It, once it happens, it is too late. We cannot be reactive anymore to this sort of stuff. Right now, so this morning on social media, I posted a uh, house file they call that a house file in the state of iowa that makes it a misdemeanor for a person pursuing fur bears for the uh for the purpose of of taking fur fur bears or training dogs to chase fur bears it makes it a misdemeanor for you to allow your dog to enter private property without first gaining permission you tracking what I'm saying, if oh, yeah. you allow your dog to cross this fence and go onto private property, you can be charged with a misdemeanor under this proposed bill right now in Iowa. It's House Re- House File 2147, and people need to, from all over, need to make their voice heard on that and say, how in the world am I going to prevent my hound from leaving this piece of property and getting over here if i get a piece permission to hunt one property if this goes through i better get permission for everything within about a five mile radius of of where i'm turning that hound loose so you get a farmer over here a guy that's involved in ag and and he wants a coyote hunter to come in and help him control his predator problem or you get a, a grain farmer that's got raccoons destroying his crop and he wants a houndsman to come in there to help him with his problem the three acre parcel on the corner of this section that's owned by this farmer you know you got you got the guy living on the three acre section if you don't have permission from him and your hound crosses on there buckle up buttercup because you are going to do right then you've you violated the law yep for sure, we fought this in Michigan, and we were successful uh, in in the fight. 
But uh, these are precisely the kind of things that we have to be aware of, and uh, we have to combat these things. You know, I'll give a shout-out to my friends Joe and Nancy Hudson up in the UP uh, of Michigan. Uh, The UP Bear Houndsman Banquet will be held in March, and uh, I'm very honored to be uh, on the docket of speakers up there this year. Uh, and looking forward to it, but that's a, this wolf issue is something that's very near and dear to the hearts of those people up there because uh, the hounds are are being killed uh, at an alarming clip uh, by wolves in Michigan and as you said in Wisconsin and and uh, all across the Upper Midwest. So uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, I hope to do some recording while I'm up there and. Uh, and maybe we can get some firsthand information on what's going on up there as far as uh, uh, dealing with the wolf issue. Yep, yep. And and we need we need our listeners. That's what, this podcast was designed to be the voice for the houndsman. So when the reason I'm aware of the house file in Iowa is because one of our listeners, I'm going to give him a shout out, James Mead, forwarded me the the proposed bill, and asked me my advice on it, asked us what we should do about it. So if you know that legislation is coming up, then notify us. We will talk about it on this podcast, and we will do the things that we need to do to orchestrate an effective countermeasure to that bill. Um, What we can do is not nearly as valuable as what you can do right now on the ground in your home state, and that is forming these alliances among your fellow houndsmen stop arguing about who's going to turn what dogs loose and what color dogs you're hunting and 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 all this other stuff and and unite now's the time it's coming it's not going to be pretty and it's going to be too late and reach out now and support the deer hunters find those ways to bridge those gaps with your deer hunters and your duck hunters and your small game hunters bring all those people together Make them aware of what's happening, because if we lose hound hunting, the guy sitting in the deer stand, we've said this before, you know, maybe the next law is, well, you're not allowed to hunt a deer from an elevated platform. Maybe you're not allowed to hunt a deer over a food plot. Maybe you're not allowed to hunt a deer with a, an elect, you know, a, a, a compound bow. Who knows what it can be, but it's coming. Oh, without a doubt, for sure. And, um, we have to be vigilant and everybody doing their part, as you say, Chris, is that's the fundamental thing. Again, we talked about it recently on a podcast about every vote counts. You know, why do politicians go out to some farmer in the middle of Iowa and knock on his door when it's only one vote? But that one vote becomes one more, becomes one more. And that's how elections are won and lost. And, uh, uh, well, we, we've certainly uh, shined the tree, as we like to say on the podcast today, Chris, but uh, I think we're, it's been a good discussion from my standpoint. really enjoyed the uh, uh, the recap of your Western tour. Any other thing, interesting things that happened out there? Oh, we just, that, you know, yeah, I got on a soapbox here, but I think, I think um, it's a discussion that needs to be had, but there are still tons of opportunities for houndsmen uh all across our country and 
I would just encourage people to go try new things and experience new places to hunt, get to know houndsmen from other parts of the country that, that I'm telling you right now that the guys in the West have no idea what it's like to be in a night hunt. You know, 99% of them have, they've only heard what it is. And so they're as interested about what we're doing here with our hounds as we are about what they're doing with their hounds. But there is no divide here. The common thread is the love of this lifestyle of being a houndsman and and hearing those dogs work out that track, come treed, you know, bringing that rabbit around to the gun, whatever it is, there's a common thread there. And I just encourage people to to uh, to go experience that. Take some vacation time and, and go see what's going on out there in the big bad world. Well said, well said. You know, uh, I just had this conversation with one of our former guests, uh, Randy Smith, um, just today about he just returned from his annual trapping trip to Louisiana and talking about the, the very abundant raccoon population there and uh, the the availability of land to hunt and so forth. So it may in, entail getting out of out of the backyard uh, and doing a little traveling as we've done in the last month and especially you, Chris, uh, but you've been uh, on the road a bunch too. Oh, well, yeah, I, I really have. And I honestly, my exploits haven't been a whole lot more successful than yours. Uh, this year, I started off, you know, uh, back in the fall and, uh, we did go to Arkansas, which was hampered by the water this year again. Uh, that's getting to be a problem out there. Uh, but we had uh, seven or eight great days in camp, ate lots of food, told lots of stories, and uh, and had you know had a I had a wonderful time. And of course, we did have a very successful bear hunt in Virginia, uh, tree and five bears in five days. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. But uh, but anyway, yeah, did a lot of traveling, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more. Uh, Nubbin and I have a trip up in Alabama, a three or four day trip that we're going to, uh, go and try a new spot. And, uh, so you got so. your kitchen pass renewed. Uh, I did, you know, I, I might've told, uh, you or, or the listeners <laughs> that, uh, Miss Ella told me the last time she said, I don't mind you doing all this traveling this winter. That's great. But before you plan any more trips, how about let's have a talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, you, you have any idea what she was getting at there? Uh, <laughs> I kind of got the same response last night. It's like, uh, <laughs> Hey, I'm glad you're home, but I'm going to tell you four weeks, it was too long. I didn't even know she liked me that much. That's right. You know, that's so. Right. Well, we do. That's a good way to tell, but it's a risky way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, well I I think we've uh, pretty well covered uh, the better part of an hour or so here, Chris. I'm not sure, but. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So. I, I'm glad that we got to to share the experience. Shout out to to everybody that was um, was hosting along the way. Calvin Redhouse, um, Jared Moss of B- Best Gun Dogs, and uh, in Beaver, Utah, Anthony Pace. Big shout out to him and Freedom Hunters. Yep. Um, you know, not only did he was he a great host on the reservation, but after we got to uh, 
Las Vegas. I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, Anthony's a mover and a shaker. That guy, he he gets out and works hard for for Americans veterans and and makes sure that there's opportunities out there. Uh, he was in meetings doing radio shows. He was working his tail off at the shot show, and I can't stress enough to our listeners what a great organization that is. I interacted with uh, uh, some of the veterans that have been involved with Freedom Hunters. There, great guys. Um, and just a great organization. His family was there. And then uh, Kevin and Nancy Hall up in up in uh, Pocatello, Idaho. And then Jamie Anderson is one of the best cooks that I've I've ever eaten her food. I mean, she's she's an outstanding cook. We had huckleberry pie. We had uh, uh, they pick the huckleberries up there and mm. freeze them. And we had breakfast burritos. Um, and she's fun to be in the mountains with. Her and Larry both are fun to be in, mount, in the mountain with. Mountains with, but uh, um, so shout out to to everybody that um, took me under their wing and and took care of me the last four weeks. Well, they did a good job, and uh, yeah, I'll uh, echo that as well. It's good to see you uh, made it safely back home, and uh, you know, uh, another person I'd like to briefly give a shout out to, Chris, is our buddy, the big guy, uh, Mark Zepp. Uh, Mark has been a supporter of this podcast uh, since the very start. Uh, not out front type thing, but uh, he's been there with products and things that we've used in our drawings and our promotions. And uh, uh, so I just want to give a shout out to my big buddy uh, there, Mark. Uh, he's at markzepp, dot com, And, of course, he builds predator calls, coon squallers. He has a new line of dog boxes. His, uh, his clothing and all. But Mark's just a great guy that's been very supportive uh, of us, and I just wanted to give him a brief shout-out. And he's never asked for a thing. You know, that's the thing. You never. See, you see Mark, He's there's there, there are going to be some good things coming in the near future, and uh, uh, Mark was instrumental in, in opening some doors for us with this podcast. So um, I, I will echo and amplify what you said about Mark Zepp. You know, he's been behind the scenes, been happy to be behind the scenes, but he's been a huge supporter. For sure, for sure. Well, is it about time to turn them loose, Chris? It is. (laughs) All right. Well, as we've said many, many times on this podcast, if you're a houndsman, you know what I'm talking about. When we cut loose on this track, you follow your hound, I'll follow mine.